This is The Rounds Table. All right, uh, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, we have another exciting episode in store for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about COPD, a little bit about trigospid regurgitation. Justin will help me to find the connection. Uh, all right, Justin, what do you have up for us first? Alrighty, so today we'll talk about dupilumab for COPD with type 2 inflammation indicated by eosinophil counts. Uh, this was published this May in Nedjum. Cool. Another monoclonal antibody for me to learn about, forget, and then look up. Anyway, what was the research question here? Will this monoclonal antibody produce a clinical benefit in patients with COPD? All right. Why was this important? I think this is important because COPD is a disease that we often encounter within internal medicine. And really, there are very few treatments that we have that actually improve lung function and prevent exacerbation. And so I think because of that, any therapy that could do this is really important to investigate. And so really improving lung function and really reducing exacerbations are unmet needs in this patient population. Yep, I'm totally sold. Uh, What was the study design? All right, so this is a phase three multicenter international double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial, and this was conducted across 24 countries, which is really amazing. There were many inclusion criteria, but to really distill this into a couple points. Um, so these were either current or former tobacco smokers that had a smoking history of at least 10 pack years. Uh, beyond that, they had to have been diagnosed for COPD for greater than 12 months and have an MRC dyspnea score of two or higher. And beyond that, they had to be on triple therapy, so having a LAMA, a LABA, and ICS, and they had to have a sputum eosinophil count or a blood eosinophil count that was positive at their screening visit. Beyond that, they also had to have either two moderate exacerbations or one severe exacerbation um, within the year before they were screening. And so really, this is an exacerbation that led to hospitalization, required glucocorticoids. In terms of exclusion criteria, really it was having none of the above or having another severe pulmonary disease that was not COPD. Beyond that, the actual intervention was to do a one-to-one randomization into receiving subcutaneous dupilumab, 300 milligrams, or a matching placebo dose every two weeks for 52 weeks. And then after this sort of trial period of 52 weeks, the patients entered a 12-week follow-up period. And then to really sort of finalize their methods, in terms of their primary outcome, it was really looking at the annualized rate of moderate or severe exacerbations of COPD during that 52-week trial period. Gotcha. Okay. So multi-center, international, double-blind, placebo-controlled. They included adults who definitely had COPD defined as age 40 up, at least 10 pack years uh, of smoking, plus a diagnosis of COPD for at least the past 12 months. And they were on LAVA, LAMA, ICS, uh, all that good stuff. And the primary outcome was actually a pretty darn good clinical endpoint, which was moderate to severe um, COPD exacerbations over 52 weeks. Is that about right? That's correct. Cool. And what did the table one look like? And so their table one was generally balanced. So the median age was 65 and they had a relatively balanced sex composition. So 60 to 40 men to women. Uh, and they also had similar degrees of comorbidity, so really balanced in terms of them being on triple therapy, uh, spirometry, and having markers of inflammation, so the eosinophil count I mentioned earlier. Um, beyond that, 84% of individuals that were enrolled were white. Okay, and what were the main findings here? Does this monoclonal antibody work? It seems that it does. So the annualized rate of moderate or severe exacerbations of COPD was 0.78 in the group that received dupilumab and 1.10 in the group that received placebo. And so ultimately, there was quite a large difference between those that received this antibody in terms of their actual outcomes. 
Okay. And safety stuff? And so in terms of safety, there was a similar amount of adverse events in the dupilumab group compared to the placebo group. And so it was 77.4% in the dupilumab and 76 in the placebo group. Cool. Yeah. Any secondary outcomes you want to chat about? Yes. So I think that an important secondary outcome to chat about is that there was an improvement in their baseline pre-bronchodilator FEV1 if they received the dupilumab relative to the placebo group. And so essentially the change uh, from baseline with this intervention was around 160 cc's compared to placebo, which is around 77. Yeah. So it's it's always tricky, right? Like when authors focus on relative risk reductions, so I guess it was like 0.78 events versus 1.1 events. So that's like absolute difference of like 0.4. So like 0.4 less moderate to severe exacerbations per year for a year of this drug. Is that worth it? I don't know. I guess I'll have to ask the patient, Uh, but a 30% relative risk reduction, which sounds impressive. I don't know if I'm sold. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Uh, what, What were the limitations here? I think the limitations to consider in the study would really be that this study was conducted during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I think overall, many individuals that had underlying respiratory illness weren't really out and about and in situations where they could be exposed to other infections and precipitate COPD exacerbations. And so they had decreased recruitment and it was hard for them to recruit for this study. Apart from that, they also had sort of a population that wasn't really representative of um, whom we care for. And so in particular, individuals who identified as Black were underrepresented within this trial. And also randomization wasn't stratified according to smoking status. And so it's hard to know if, if someone was actively smoking versus not, if that would have changed their response to this autoantibody. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think we see this extremely commonly in, in COVID as well, that there is often slash almost always underrepresentation of people who are not white. And I think there's a lot of initiatives that are going on to try to improve that but it's certainly something that requires a lot more time and attention. Um, I think your point about not stratifying by smoking is is a great one for sure. The other things I ask myself is like, what's what's the cost of this going to be? Not only money, but time. Like this is like a pretty intensive treatment. But anyway, what's the take-home point? So I think the take-home point is that exacerbations of COPD, regardless of severity, have poorer quality of life, hospitalizations, and using this medication, the dupilumab, uh, resulted in a lower annualized rate of exacerbations, better lung function and quality of life compared to placebo. And is this practice changing? I think this could have the potential to be practice changing. I mean, I I think for me, similar to what you mentioned about the rate of exacerbation, I think what was most interesting to me um, was the quality of life um, improvement for these patients and the better lung function that they received as a result of this medication. And so I think that that sort of balanced with the rate of exacerbation. I think that I would consider this as one of the many things in our arsenal. But of course, it seems like this would be something that's more further down the line and I would rely on more specialist colleagues to help guide that. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, But you're right. It's good to know that even after somebody's on triple therapy and they have very severe disease, it is good to know that there might be another tool that we can use. And there's very few things in medicine that actually improve quality of life. So your point is very well taken. The devil is deep within the details. So, you know, what I've learned for these randomized trials is uh, the question is like, what is the minimally clinically minimally clinically meaningful difference. I think that's what it is. I might be uh, mucking that one up. Um, uh, But what is the minimal difference that patients will actually notice a difference? You know, we we don't just want statistical difference in quality of life, but is it a, a meaningful change? Anyway, that'll come up more in this next study. 
This episode has been brought to you by Sault Ste. Marie Physician Recruitment and Retention Program, aka Sioux Med. Uh, there are multiple different elective opportunities for residents or medical students to spend time in the Sioux, as well as locum opportunities in general medicine, surgical specialties, anesthesia, OB, you name it. If you want to learn more, you can email me at mike.fralick at utoronto.ca or message me on Twitter. The next study is Transcatheter Repair for Patients with Tricuspid Regurgitation, published in New England Journal of Medicine in May of 2023. Very current. What was the research question? Yeah, can percutaneous repair of severe tricuspid regurg improve clinical outcomes? And why was this important? I'm not a cardiologist. Most of people who listen to this show aren't cardiologists, but we see a lot of patients, or at least a decent number of patients who come into general medicine as a result of um, severe tricuspid regurgitation. We know that it's a debilitating condition. It's associated with terrible quality of life, you know, bad morbidity as well as mortality. And, you know, decreasing tricuspid regurgitation, it certainly can reduce symptoms and improve clinical outcomes. But right now, our medical management kind of sucks, right? It's based on diuretics and other drugs that we might use for heart failure. I agree. And what was their study design? So this was an industry-funded, multi-center, unblinded, randomized controlled trial of a percutaneous tricuspid valve repair. So the population were individuals with severe tricuspid regurgitation. I'm not going to pretend to list off the echo criteria. I don't even know what they mean, but trust me or trust the authors, it was severe. And not only did it have to be severe from an echo standpoint, but they also had to be symptomatic. So we're talking NYHA 2, 3, or 4A, as well as uh, signs of increased pulmonary systolic pressure. And they also had to be on, you know, guideline-directed treatment, probably so that we can make sure we're comparing um, apples to apples. And then finally, they had to be an intermediate or greater surgical risk. So it was one of those individuals who are like, oh, I really don't want to, you know, crack open grandma's sternum to do this um, uh, surgery. Exclusion criteria were if they had severe AS or MR, as well as a few other exclusion criteria. As mentioned, the intervention was a percutaneous repair of their tricuspid valve, and the comparator was medical therapy. Um, the outcome here was a composite of death or tricuspid valve surgery or hospitalization for heart failure or improvement of quality of life by 15 points or greater uh, established within one year. There's lots of problems with composite outcomes. I won't get into that, um, but was their primary outcome and uh, the analysis was intention to treat. Alrighty. And what did their patients look like? So 175 were randomized to the intervention, 175 control. Uh, mean age was 78, 55% were women, a 90% had atrial fibrillation, 80% had high blood pressure, and 40% had a prior mitral aortic valve procedure, and 25% had been hospitalized for heart failure in the past year. So like, these are sick patients and the types of patients we see on GIM, right? And then it's important to know with any trial, when you want to randomize somebody to a drug or not, it's, you know, you can probably assume they took the drug. Whereas with a device procedure, you really want to know, were the people who randomized to get the device, did they actually get the device? And so a 99% had a device that was successfully implanted among those who were randomized to receive it. Okay. And what were their main results? So uh, the results are a little bit hard to explain because they had this 
composite outcome and they analyzed it using something called a win ratio. So I guess um, the primary outcome was favored in the individuals who were randomized to get the percutaneous repair of their tricuspid valve. We refer to it as a win ratio of like 1.5, like a 50% higher ratio of win. And what we mean by win is like a good outcome as opposed to a bad outcome. They also looked at a lot of secondary outcomes, which is really important for composites when you want to know, okay, well, what drove the difference? So the incidence of death was the same between the two groups. The incidence of tricuspid valve surgery, you know, like going on to need to have their sternum cracked open, um, was similar between the two. The rate of hospitalization for heart failure was also similar between the two. So of course, we're left asking ourselves, so what was different between the two? So the main component of the composite that was different was their quality of life score by about uh, 12 points or so. So it wasn't the 15 they were hoping for, but it still was a pretty sizable difference between the two groups. And they also looked at the degree to which people had tricuspid regurgitation at 30 days after randomization. So, you know, 87% of patients who had the percutaneous repair uh, essentially no longer had severe TR, whereas uh, 5% in the control group no longer had severe TR. I could have said that much simpler. Much simpler would be if you didn't have the procedure, you were far more likely to still have really bad TR uh, 30 days later. And then in terms of safety events, the procedure itself was found to be safe and major adverse events was quite rare at 30 days. That makes sense. And were there any limitations with the study? Yeah, it makes sense, kind of. So I think the main limitation is it's really hard to interpret composite outcomes, especially when composite outcomes are then analyzed using a win ratio. It, it is a relatively small study. However, the fact that they even pulled this randomized trial off is really incredible. There's also no sham comparator. So remember that for certain procedures, you know, maybe the comparator should have been we brought you into the angio suite, you know, we put a radio line in you, we jiggled it around a bit and kept you on the table for an hour. And then we removed it, patched you up and sent you on your way. So, you know, that would have reduced any potential like placebo effect or nocebo effect. However, 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 it's like the mechanics of this make me think that the ability to fix the TR it was crystal clear that at least from echocardiographic findings that it had a, a major, major impact on improving the valve's function. But we didn't really see that so much in the hard clinical endpoints. Alas, the trial was relatively small. So those are some limitations to consider. Well, I think that's very fair. And to your point about the win ratio, I couldn't even describe what that would be. <laughs> um, what is the take-home point? Yeah, and imagine how hard that would be for patients to interpret exactly. So um, a take-home point is that I think this study clearly shows that it is safe for patients to have this percutaneous procedure to fix their severe TR in the right candidate. I also think it's pretty clear that it will reduce the symptoms and the severity of TR and potentially quality of life. Will it improve other hard endpoints? We probably just need a larger study to know that for sure. Mm-hmm. And is this practice changing? It is because I think a lot of other times it would be like, oh, look, that person has really bad TR, but there's not much we can do for them. Uh, whereas now it's like, well, wait a second. I think maybe we will start thinking about severe TR the same way that we think about severe aortic stenosis. Like, listen, even if you have a lot of comorbidities, there might be a lot of good that can be done here from a quality of life standpoint. So for that reason, I think it is uh, practice changing for me.
fantastic. All right, Justin, that is it for bad TR. Uh, what good stuff do you have for us? Uh, so I guess I'm jumping on the Nintendo Switch bandwagon. There was a new Zelda game that was released. And so I don't know if you play any video games, Mike, but uh, it's been uh, quite a great game to play. It's made a, a big splash in the video game scene. Ah, uh, you have the wrong Freilich if my brother was was here today. Not that he's dead. He's just in Calgary. Um, but <laughs> But if my brother was interviewing right now, I, he'd have way more to say. He loved playing Zelda as a kid. Uh, not not so much for me. But anyway, mine is not video game related, but loosely related to what we talked about in the last episode. So Justin, for your next vacation, you know, skip asking somebody their tips on what you should do. Skip Google or Expedia or whatever websites people use. Just use ChatGPT. I used ChatGPT on a recent trip that I had to Israel. And I was like, hey, Give me a, I have two days in Tel Aviv, like plan me an itinerary, spot on. It was terrific. So really? Yes, yes. A, a very good use, a very good non-academic use of these large language models. Essays and travel. No. Exactly, exactly. Although to be fair, I also asked my friend what restaurants to go and he had great advice. But But in terms of how to spend the time, it was spot on. Anyway, Justin, all this talk about travel makes me want to book a vacation. Uh, thanks for chatting. We'll, we'll talk again soon. Thanks. See ya. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support. <laughs>